Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Despite the Roe v. Wade ruling of the early 70s, saying that a woman has a right to end a pregnancy, there remains a strong desire among women to be mothers. An entire industry has arisen to support those who wish to conceive but cannot. Like many other ethical questions and decisions we face, it is appropriate to ground our perspectives on Scripture as the starting and ending points in this discussion. Today, I have with me Stephanie Gray Connors, an international speaker and author of three books, one of which we'll be discussing today entitled Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately About Infertility and In Vitro Fertilization. I first heard about Stephanie by a staff person from my local pregnancy resource center. He suggested I go to YouTube and watch her presentation given at Google on the subject of abortion. Boy, was I impressed. There are people who have been gifted by God to be good communicators, and Stephanie is certainly one. However, it's obvious to me that she has worked at her craft in order to be able to deal with delicate subjects such as abortion, assisted suicide, and in vitro fertilization with compassion while not neglecting biblical ethics. Stephanie, thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're so welcome, Andrea. I appreciate your kind words. You know, for years, I've had the conviction that IVF, the acronym for in vitro fertilization, is not in line with scripture. However, it wasn't until reading your book that all the pieces came together for me and I felt that I could more adequately discuss this topic, not only with knowledge, but with empathy. Hmm. So tell us a bit about why you wrote the book and so far what the responses have been to it. Yeah, great, great question. You know, when I think to the motivation, uh, often in my pro-life talks on abortion, people during Q&A would ask about what I thought about embryo adoption, which would then lead to a question about the ethics of in vitro fertilization. And I became very aware that I was answering questions like that to an audience in which I very likely had audience members who were conceived that way. And I realized that with that topic, as with abortion, there was a need to go tread very sensitively, uh, because if I was going to make any moral criticism of IVF, I didn't want the person conceived that way to think I was making a criticism of them as an individual. And I also realized there was a lack of formation on this issue. And then a friend of mine contacted me and said, my sister-in-law is pursuing IVF. You know, she talks about her embryos being graded and she's using the A plus, but they're only going to keep the C minus on, you know, in storage. And she hopes they don't have to go to that one. It's not as good quality. She goes, you've got to write on this. You've got to speak on this. And so all of these things came together so that I thought, well, you know, I have been given a, a skill and a talent in the area of teaching people how to think, um, you know, wisely and compassionately and reasonably on a lot of these controversial issues. Why don't I apply it to this other controversial issue? And so I began to dive into this topic. 
And what's funny about the topic is I, I don't think a lot of people have difficulty saying that abortion kills an unborn child. But because infertility is a sensitive subject, I would say that most people don't even understand what happens in terms of having in vitro fertilization take place. Would you mind just as succinctly as you can to describe the process? Sure. So um, in vitro really means in glass. And so instead of fertilization, sperm egg fusion happening, happening in the woman's body after a sexual act where the sperm would meet the egg somewhere along her fallopian tube. And then you'd have a, a new human being as the one-celled embryo or zygote. Um, instead of that happening in the woman's body, uh, sperm are taken from a man, typically through an act of masturbation. Eggs are retrieved from a woman uh, through um, um, ovulation, superovulation, and then an extraction process. And then a scientist takes the sperm and the egg and puts them together in a Petri dish uh, or allows them to come together. Sometimes one sperm is directly injected into one egg. That's a procedure called ICSI or ICSI. Uh, other times they just put a bunch of sperm in with one egg and, and, you know, they see which makes the cut, so to speak. But the point is that happens in glass. It happens in the lab. It happens in the hands, at the hands of a stranger, someone who's not part of the covenantal relationship. And then the scientists watch that embryo and all the other ones they created, because they typically make more than one, they watch them for a few days as these new tiny human beings mature and develop. And then they decide which are deemed to be the most fit in terms of being likely to implant if inserted and most likely to go to birth if implant, if they implant. And uh, then they will select a couple of those embryos and in, insert them into the woman's body with the hope that implantation and nine months later birth will occur. So one of the things that to take away from the explanation and what you mentioned about your friend who had someone who was having embryos graded is that this whole process makes human beings at their earliest stages objects, not subjects. Talk a little bit about that, please. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the points I make in my book is that human beings are image bearers. We bear God's image and therefore we need to realize that although all of creation was good, that when God made man, it was very good. We are set apart, we are different, and we are subjects and not objects. And therefore we need to be treated differently from objects. Objects are manufactured. Subjects are not manufactured. They are, the um, you know, a gift that is bestowed by the owner of the gift, which is not you or me. Uh, it is is God himself. And so the problem with IVF is it involves manufacturing a human person as though they are an object, putting parts together, you know, even in establishing the, the a grading system is really about the quality of the object. And if we were talking about, you know, what kind of flat screen TV do you want? You know, this is our, our high quality version. This one is cheaper, um, but it's not as good quality, right? We do that with objects. We talk about, you know, this, this gradient, this scale of the best versus the most economical, which isn't always the best quality and so forth. Um, and that's okay for objects. But the problem is with IVF, whether the couple 
intends this or not, whether they're fully aware of this happening or not, the very nature of IVF and the very heart of the industry is to, in all ways, treat this human person, the youngest of our kind, the preborn child, as though they are an object being manufactured. And what it says is somebody is making the determination of A plus, B plus, or C plus, or let's discard it. And you could say that the technicians, the medical people are playing God here because Mm -hmm. they're deciding who should live and who should die. And it says that if you're born with something like cystic fibrosis, or you are somebody who has spina bifida or whatever it is, you're less than a person because, you know, if we had the choice, we might have eliminated you. And that, and that, you know, when you have the choice, the very reality of eliminating that individual is something that occurs with IVF that on a number of occasions, the IVF lab will determine if some embryos are carrying a genetic condition that is not favorable to the parents into the lab, then those embryos will never be inserted. Instead, they will be destroyed immediately, or they will be used for scientific experimentation and ultimately be destroyed in that process. Sometimes, though, they don't identify genetic problems with the preborn child that early. And so they think the embryo is quote unquote good quality. It's inserted into the woman. Implantation occurs. She's proceeding with her pregnancy. She does uh, typical, typical pregnancy uh, testing that can happen sometimes in, in the first trimester. I myself never pursued that testing when I was pregnant with my child, but some people do. They get a blood work done to see if there's any genetic anomalies. And in there have been cases where some people have pursued IVF. They're desperate to have a child. They have the child implanted uh, or inserted in the child implants. And then they discover through pregnancy testing that um, the baby has Down syndrome. And those very individuals that wanted a child so badly in some cases then pursue abortion. Because they have been influenced by that mindset that this is a manufacturing process, that this is an object, not a subject. And if the object doesn't meet the quality control, doesn't meet the standard that you wanted, well, then you just get rid of it and you expect a replacement. That's how we treat objects. And when we see this happening to subjects in the context of IVF, where preborn children are denied the right to continue their lives because they have some sort of genetic condition, uh, that is a, a profound tragedy and injustice to the youngest of our kind. And that's the kind of thing that I say most people don't think about. In other words, oh, they can't get pregnant. They go ahead and do IVF. I think what most people recognize is that it costs a lot of money. And I've always wondered, let's say the process works exactly as the couple and the doctors want. And this child, maybe as a result of many previous attempts, is a $100,000 baby. Mm. And what pressure does that put on someone? Because it's not that by God's grace, you were conceived. And this is who God gave us. No, we wanted a certain result and we didn't get it. It's almost like you can make a purchase at Amazon. And if you don't like it, you know, do you get to return it? Because it's not exactly what you hoped for. Yeah, we absolutely need to be uh 
should be concerned about that. And, and I think, for example, of survivor guilt, if someone, you know, survives when other people die in a tragedy, they almost think, well, why me? You know, what, what does that mean? There's almost a weight and a burden that can come with that. And for someone conceived by IVF, where the parents made multiple attempts so that they, you know, invested, let's say a hundred thousand dollars at the end of the day, they finally have this, this child. How is that child going to feel knowing that 10 or 15 of their siblings didn't survive for them to come to be? And how does that impact them? And even the fact that they know there's a price tag on their life, what psychological toll does that take on them? Uh, If they, you know, um, feel that they aren't as good in school as their parents want them to be, that they aren't as accomplished as their parents want them to be, are they going to start to wonder I bet my parents wish they picked a different embryo. Uh, They regret that I was the one that was ultimately, you know, the success because I don't feel like a success. I mean, this is the type of complex psychological, emotional, even spiritual uh, ramifications that can come along with the pursuit of IVF. It's something that affects far more than the individuals pursuing IVF. And um, it it really affects uh, the next generation. And it seems to put less attention on the child than it does on the parents who want to be parents. Um, I understand the, the, the desire. It's a God-given desire for a woman to be a mother and for a man to be a father. But sometimes God says no. When you look back in scripture, there's a number of the female prominent figures, Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah, who were apparently infertile for a time, and it was a problem. It was a a source of distress for them. And growing up, I remember my mother referring to her monthly cycle as the curse. I have Mm. the curse. And I used to wonder, like, what is that? And then I realized as I became a student of scripture that it is a curse for a woman when she can conceive. And the evidence that she can't conceive is that monthly cycle that appears. And so it's a natural feeling to want to remedy it. You're not saying that natural aids to fertility are bad. You're saying when we turn it into a laboratory experiment. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, one of the points I wanted to address early on, which which I do in the first chapter, is that the pain of infertility is a very heavy cross. And several of my friends who have lived with that cross were willing to let me interview them. And I share their stories in my book. And I wanted the readers to be able to connect with that type of pain if the reader herself has you know, gone down that path or is going down that path or knows someone who's going down that path so that we don't, in making a moral critique of IVF, we don't minimize the very profound suffering that people who face infertility are living with. So we want to acknowledge this is a tragedy. It's something that's not right. We were designed by God to be fruitful and multiply. It's the first command that he gave us. So the vast majority of people are able to fulfill that command because the vast majority of people are are called to marriage. And then in that context, the vast majority do conceive. So for those who struggle in that area, like any 
physiological problem. Maybe someone has cancer. Maybe someone has a physical disability. These are things that have gone wrong in nature because we're living in a broken world. So it makes sense that we grieve the brokenness and that we try to correct it. I have a whole chapter called Shalom, which is all about, you know, really establishing wholeness much more than peace. It's about, you know, establishing things the way they were meant to be in the beginning. So my point is that there are ethical interventions when one faces infertility. And there are unethical ones. And so IVF falls into the category of unethical, but it doesn't mean there aren't alternatives. There very much are. You know, if there's hormone imbalances, a woman can get hormone treatment. If she has blocked fallopian tubes, she can have a surgery that would unblock them. If she has PCOS, she could have ovarian wedge resection surgery. Endometriosis, there's surgery for that. You know, if she's not ovulating, she can be uh, prescribed a, a pharmaceutical, a pill that she would take that would cause her ovary to release an egg. But in all of these examples I've just given, the point is to correct the underlying problem so that when a couple engages in sexual intimacy, their bodies in that private intimate encounter are more likely to produce the fruit of their married love in the form of a child. Um, but they still engage in that private one flesh union. Whereas with IVF, no sex is necessary. It's entirely, the creation of someone occurs entirely out, outside of the sexual act and therefore at the hands, not of the husband and wife, but at the hands of a stranger. And so one manufactures a human like they're an object and makes sex unnecessary. The other sexual intimacy in marriage makes sex very necessary for life to come to be, not because that life was manufactured, but because it is received as a fruit of that physical expression of the couple's marital vows. So you have just expressed a biblical view of marriage. And marriage, as we experience it, is a picture of Jesus's relationship with his church. Yes. And yet we have this idea that it doesn't break the marriage vow to use somebody else's egg if your eggs aren't good or somebody else's sperm. But in a very real sense, that's a violation of the two become one in God's economy. And so we have reduced marriage just to the sex act, not realizing that the whole process of IVF is a real peril to the family in so many other ways. Yeah. So there's two things that can happen. You could have a couple who use, you know, who are married and they use their own sperm and egg, but the sperm and egg come together, not in the heart of that couple's physical manifestation of their marital love, but at the hands of a stranger. Alternatively, you could have a couple who, let's say the woman has no eggs or the husband has zero sperm count. So then they enlist a third party to get eggs and sperm from one or both. And then they end up creating a child, not only at the hands of a stranger who works at an IVF lab, but they end up creating a child who I would say, morally speaking, ethically speaking, could never come into existence because the only relationship God allows sexual intimacy in is the relationship of marriage. And sexual intimacy is how offspring come to be. So if the only relationship in which one can have sex is with their spouse, then that means 
the only children that should come into existence, of course, technically people can have one night stands and, and bring a child into existence. But in terms of morality, talking about how things ought to be, not what can be, in terms of how things ought to be, then the only children that should come into existence, morally speaking, are children that are the genetic fruits of the mother and father. So when you then involve third parties, whether they are sperm and egg donors, or what I think is more accurate is sperm and egg sellers, because typically the people that give their sperm and egg away are compensated for that. Uh, you are now bringing a child into existence who genetically is not part of that covenantal relationship. And you're making someone who morally wouldn't come into existence through the marriage bed because that genetic background wouldn't happen physically in sex, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And what it does is it it takes the analogous relationship that the Bible says is Christ and his church, and it destroys it because it's not personal and intimate. And yeah. I imagine, even though this has been going on for decades, there might even be ramifications physically when you involve so many different people. Yeah, well, there is that element as well. And that's one of the points I make in my book is that when you, let's say, are a surrogate and you have someone else as an egg seller and someone, so you, the, the surrogate's own eggs aren't used and obviously sperm comes from the man, then the embryo that is in that surrogate's body has no genetic relation to her. And so there have been some studies indicating that there's a risk of preeclampsia and other complications with the pregnancy because the woman has no genetic relationship to the child. So it's almost like if you get an organ transplant, that's a foreign entity uh, that's not part of your genetic makeup. And that's why there's often anti-rejection drugs that are taken when, when someone receives someone else's organ. So when I conceived my child, yes, the sperm was foreign to my body, but the egg was from my body. So therefore that growing embryo shared my DNA, my preborn child, now my born child. And so therefore um, there, my body in a sense was recognizing there's something similar here, even though it's a little different. So, so I, and I think, you know, this idea that Christ's love for the church uh, is often used in the spousal analogy, uh, a husband's love for his wife. As you say, it's, it's intimate, it's personal, it's sacred. And that's what the sexual act is. But IVF takes all of that away, that mystery, that sacredness, that intimacy, that privacy, that exclusivity. It's contracting out the creation of one's child to a, a third party. And if you think about, you know, the sexual act, I often think, you know, we look at the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It is a communion of persons, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this giving and receiving of love. And the husband and wife, through the sexual act, are very much physically representing that type of communion of persons. He's fully giving of himself. She's fully receiving of him. And that communion of persons creates possibly another person in the form of the child. And that child is now in a communion of persons with the mother because the child is beginning his or her life beneath the mother's heart. So for the sexual act to happen, you need a communion of persons. You can't be separated. You know, the husband and wife need to come together for the child or when the child comes to be, you have a communion of persons, the child beneath the mother's heart. And this, in a sense, is reflecting the communion of persons of the Trinity. IVF is the exact opposite of that. It is total separation and division. As I mentioned, typically the man's seed is, is uh, obtained through masturbation. So he's alone. 
even if he was obtaining his seed with his wife, the point is for IVF to occur, her presence is unnecessary. What matters is the obtaining of his seed. Um, so you have division, you have separation. The woman goes by herself to have her eggs retrieved. Her eggs, which normally should be in her body to receive the sperm, are now being taken from her body. Could her husband go with her and hold her hand? Yes, he could, but is his presence necessary for egg retrieval? It's absolutely not. So once again, you have separation, you have division, no communion is needed for for this to occur. Then what happens when the embryo first begins his or her life? We talked about IVF in vitro, in glass. So the embryo is not beneath the mother's heart, not in a communion of persons with the closest relationship that child will have, but that between the child and mother, but instead separation and division. Once again, now you have someone separated from this intimate relationship. The child is away from the mother and father in a glass dish, you know, at the hands of a stranger. So on every level of IVF, you have division and disunity. Whereas with sexual intimacy and the very start of an embryo's life, you have a communion of persons with, with sexual intimacy. And that begs the question, um, since this is a multi, I would guess, billion dollar industry, we have removed God's design from it. So now we have people who want children who may or may not be married. They just want a child. You have people who are uh, what has come to be called same sex couples mm-hmm. that now have to go purchase eggs and select a a doctor to combine these eggs with their sperm and implant them in a surrogate. This looks a lot like concubinage and child trafficking. Oh, absolutely. We should be profoundly concerned at where IVF has gone Um, from its very beginnings. It's problematic, but some people would say, well, if it's just a husband and wife and they love each other and they just can't have kids, this seems ethical. But once you open the door to saying we humans are allowed to contract out the begetting of offspring and that an individual human person can be manufactured, the moment you say that, then why stop with the married couple? then why not the same-sex couple? Why not the single woman who who just wants to have a child? And you have all these people then uh, who are pursuing IVF and stranger and stranger scenarios are happening. I just read one story in the news of a lesbian couple who pursued IVF only if they would have the, the one partner in particular wanted only a female child. She had a lot of issues with men. I mean, understandably by virtue of the lesbian relationship, but there was, there was sexual assaults in her background, a lot of woundedness, a lot of pain. So she, you know, did not have a lot of positive feelings uh, towards men and about masculinity in, in our world. And so she said, okay, I will agree to IVF, but I want a female embryo. And lo and behold, after they had the embryo inserted and the pregnancy took and the baby's growing, they discover it's a male child. So now this lesbian is horrified that there is a male inside of her. She's reminded of her rapes where a male was inside of her. And so, so now you have someone outraged that, that they didn't get what they ordered, you know? So there's a lot of really troubling stories out there. Not to mention the all too numerous stories of doctors involved in IVF who, for whatever reason, decided that 
their sperm should be the sperm that fertilized the eggs of the women clients that they had. And people find out that daddy, who thought his sperm was being used, it's not his sperm at all. And that's not his biological child. Yeah. And again, these are not isolated incidents. You start to scour the internet and you see this is all too common in two ways. One way is where there's definitely a malicious intent. It's intentional that you know, one of the people working in the IVF clinic wants to somehow have all these offspring and they don't let their clients know that they're using their own sperm instead of the clients or some hired uh, other individual. Uh, but then there are just human error that can happen. There's just mistakes that happen where the IVF clinic accidentally uses the wrong sperm, accidentally goes to the storage lab and gets the wrong egg. Um, and then you end up creating someone who the couple had no intention of creating. And again, that's what happens when you begin to manufacture the human person, that human error is going to come into play. And human error is something we have to accept in the world of manufacturing, in the world of objects. Not everything we create is going to be perfect. There's going to be mistakes. Um, but humans are different than things we can build, than things we can construct. And so once again, the problem is, the attitude is is viewing the preborn child uh, as something the child is not, namely an object. Yeah, a commodity. This is something we can trade. Which brings me to the subject of frozen embryos. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, a storage industry in and of itself nowadays, because in order to get the best possible selection, as you alluded to early on, a number of embryos, and let's let's just call it what it is. A number of children are mm -hmm. conceived, and then it becomes well. What do you call it? A beauty contest, an audition, whatever it is. Do we select the best specimens? So, what happens to all those others? Well, you said some are just left to die. You also said some are sometimes released for research, which is an ugly thought. Um, mm -hmm. But then there's some that are frozen. Talk about the frozen embryo industry. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, once you're in an industry, once you manu you're manufacturing, you want to market yourself well, which means you want a high success rate. I mean, the more money people are handing over, the more they're going to expect results. And so for an IVF clinic to get good results means they want to maximize the number of embryos created so that if when they in, insert one or two in the woman and neither of those embryos implant, then they have other embryos that they can go back for to try another insertion to see if those succeed. And so once the unfit embryos are weeded out, then the quote unquote fit ones can't all be inserted at the same time because our bodies were designed to typically hold one baby, sometimes two. My grandma had twins. Um, so my mom is a twin, uh, but generally the, the most common thing is one baby. So one or two embryos will be inserted. So let's say you have a couple that have 15 embryos created, maybe five don't pass the test. So you have 10 left. Uh, they insert two, which leaves eight embryos. Well, what happens to those eight embryos? They need a body to grow, but the mother's body isn't ready because she's trying the other two embryos out. So then those eight embryos will be subjected to the freezer. And we have to ask ourselves, how would we feel if someone mentioned they had eight toddlers in the freezer, that they were putting their toddler's life 
in a type of stasis where the toddler wasn't dead, but the toddler also wasn't allowed to grow and develop along the natural progression of where the child is in her development and instead was in a freezer until the parents decided if and when they wanted to take that toddler out, we'd be horrified. And yet that's exactly what's happening, except they're pre-toddlers. They're just a little younger. They're smaller. They're less developed. So what can happen then is some couples may have great intentions to go back for those eight embryos, maybe four times, having two inserted each time. But sometimes, um, let's say that first pregnancy of one to two embryos, let's say two embryos were inserted, okay, and both of them implanted, but let's say they split into identical twins, which is entirely possible. So the woman is now pregnant with four children. She has eight more in the freezer that she planned to go back for. But now that she has four kids, she's thinking, my family's more than complete. I don't want those eight other embryos. So then what happens to those children? In some cases, they're left in the freezer forever. Uh, In other cases, they are uh, handed over for scientific experimentation. Or in other cases, they're quote unquote placed for adoption, but it's often described as donation. You can donate your embryos. And again, would anyone ever say, I'm going to donate my toddler to my neighbor next door? Um, No. And yet this is the language we're using for a pre-toddler, a little child in the womb. And the whole adoption thing, however noble it sounds, means that the couple who produced those embryos, those children, no longer have to pay a storage fee because if you're going to keep them, um, from what I understand, it could be 400 to $1,000 a year just to keep them. And you hear people saying, yes, I just don't want to destroy them because, you know, like, like they're sort of my children. And so now we have this suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Let's just call them embryos. Let's not call them children. And now I've even seen, Stephanie, a push among certain Christian ministries to tell Christian women, you should adopt these embryos and place them in your womb. Yeah, it's interesting, that whole issue of what do we do with frozen embryos. I mean, the first point that I want to come out loud and clear in my book is that we shouldn't be making embryos. They should be the fruit of sexual intimacy. Um, and therefore, because we shouldn't be making embryos in a lab, we shouldn't be freezing embryos. <laughs> the question then becomes, well, we in our world have already done that. We have frozen embryos. What do we do with them? And I only address that briefly in an appendix. And I actually don't take a definitive conclusion. I just want to paint a picture for the reader as to how complex this type of situation is in trying to figure out the most ethical response. Because although on the surface, it might seem great, okay, we've got these these embryos, they need a home. Let's encourage Christians to adopt these children as we'd adopt toddlers, right? I've been making analogies and comparisons between embryos and toddlers this whole conversation. So if we adopt toddlers, why not adopt embryos? Well, one of the key differences is the um, embryo to be adopted means you're essentially occupying your womb for the nine months of that embryo's development. And so if you're in a marital relationship, you're therefore closing the womb, so to speak, to creating offspring with your spouse. Is it possible that God intends for you to have another child with your spouse that for all of eternity, the only opportunity for that child to come into existence would be a sexual act over those nine months? But 
by having a stranger's child in your body, if you have the sex, the sexual act, that child would never come into existence because of this other child who is there. So there are complex things for us to consider. Um, it's not as cut and dry as, oh, we would adopt a toddler, so so let's adopt an embryo. There are a lot more things to consider. Not to mention what you said earlier, that you would be having... Um a child inserted into a mother's womb who doesn't share the DNA with the child. And so there could be complications that way. Yeah, there certainly could, could be some complications there. And, and also realizing, obviously, if you adopt, let's say a toddler, that toddler has no genetic relationship typically to the adoptive parents. The difference there though, is the child came into existence. You could say, unintentionally, you know, the the woman who chooses adoption um, did not plan to get pregnant. She gets pregnant, doesn't want to be, but also, thank God, doesn't want to kill the child through abortion. And if she concludes that, okay, abortion isn't an option, but parenting isn't either. If she concludes that she cannot give this child all that she wants, then uh, as we're told in the scriptures that we are to um, care for orphans and widows in their distress. So we care for the orphan by saying, okay, this woman believes that uh, this other couple can give this child what the child needs or wants more than she can. And so this couple is responding to the plight of a child who already exists with IVF, the child doesn't yet exist. Yes, with embryo adoption, you are responding to the fact that a child already exists. But the point is, sometimes people are incentivized to pursue IVF thinking, well, don't worry if we create extra embryos because you can help another couple. And it becomes this almost like this act of generosity. By you pursuing IVF, you can create embryos that other people can take advantage of and be benefited by. And so we're now incentivizing people to uh, intentionally create someone who doesn't yet exist on the auspices that, oh, well, then they they can be placed for adoption. And so it's fundamentally different in that regard. Right. You know, I have um, an acquaintance who was seriously, I I don't know how if she's pursued it or not, but seriously considering embryo adoption, because she was unable to have children herself. So there's two things that come into play here. First of all, if God has seen fit in his for ordination that you're not going to conceive, there may be physically a good reason that you don't conceive. In other words, people who tend to miscarry, whatever, there could be some problem. As you said, we live in a fallen world and there are certain effects of sin that affect us differently. So by forcing this, it makes it as though the only thing that will fulfill a person is if she delivers a baby on her own. And the Bible never says that's the mark of holiness. That's the mark of being faithful to God that you've delivered a child. Right. The second part is, and I asked the question and she said, yeah, well, what they try to do is to match embryos with a couple so that the children look like them, so that uh, it actually, they look like they could be part of the family. So there's a screening process. And once again, this same embryo that was been rejected once might be rejected again mm. because, um, you know, doesn't fit in the eye color, hair color. And in many cases, there's not just one embryo that needs adopting. There might be eight or 10. So I asked this person, 
So what are you going to do? Well, we'll adopt all of them. I said, okay. And so you're committing to having this many children? Yes. Okay. What happens if one of you dies? Right. Great <laughs> right? question. And all this. So, and then her answer, and in all honesty, she wasn't very happy with her answer. Well, then I could donate them to someone else. And right. it's like this huge garage sale or something. And yeah. it's so dehumanizing that to be honest with you, Stephanie, sometimes it makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. It, it, and again, people are unaware of it. It's almost like there's a blindness that people don't realize the language they use, the attitudes they have uh, are not consistent with how we should treat an image bearer. Um, one of the points I make in my appendix when trying to explore this question of what do we do with, with all the frozen embryos is there's no denying as a pro-life speaker, I acknowledge those are children. They are made in God's image. They have a right to life. But even in the realm of, of bioethics, we often say that we don't have uh, a duty to pursue extraordinary care, uh, but rather ordinary care. And so, for example, uh, if, if um, you're not being fed as a child, that's ordinary care. So to be denied food uh, is, is a problem. But to be denied a trip to Disneyland, uh, that's extraordinary. Your parents don't have an, uh, an obligation to give you a trip to Disneyland. So that helps us see the difference between something that's ordinary and something that's extraordinary. So what is ordinary care is that any of my children have access to my uterus because my uterus was designed more for my offspring than it was for me. Are there benefits to my body to have a uterus? Yes. Does it help with hormone regulation and so forth? Yes. Um, But I can live without my uterus my offspring cannot. So it's an organ in me that is more for my offspring than it is for myself. But my uterus is not designed for your offspring. My uterus is not designed for another person's offspring. So you could therefore say the ordinary care would be for me to provide my uterus to my children who come about as a result of sexual intimacy with my husband. Um, It would be extraordinary care um, to have another person's child in my uterus. And so one of the points then that that someone who is concerned about embryo adoption could make is that we have a duty to meet a child's ordinary care and the ordinary responsibilities of a parent to a child, but that to house a stranger's child in your uterus is above and beyond the call of duty. Now, someone might say true. So that's why there should be no obligation to pursue embryo adoption. Some might say it would never be correct to tell someone you must adopt a stranger's frozen embryo. Uh, However, they might say a parent isn't forced to take their child to Disneyland but they can if they want. That's super abundantly generous of them. And so in the same way, they might say, you aren't obligated to give your uterus to a stranger's child, but that would be generous of you. It would be uh, really, you know, kind of you to do this. And, and perhaps an argument could be made for that, but there certainly is no duty. And even if you do make that argument, as I said earlier, there's other complicating factors to consider. Exactly. Now, if you were to go to YouTube and put in in vitro fertilization, you would find, um, and I'm saying this to my listeners because I know you know this, Stephanie, <laughs> you would find more pros. You would find more things saying this is a good idea. I, I saw a video of a woman who was thanking God for what happened because she gave birth to an embryo that was as old as she is. 
and that this embryo had been frozen for 24 years and then was implanted in her. And now she's holding a baby that's just as old as she is. And she was, I mean, it, it was, it was just bizarre because we have to get our head and think around this. But thanks to Jennifer Lawl and the Center for Bioethics and Culture, you can see other views from people who were conceived this way mm-hmm. that they're not saying, okay, I should be dead, but they're saying, look at what it's like from my point of view. And nobody was considering my point of view when all this took place. So talk a little bit in terms of how people should view those who they know who have been conceived this way, not too differently than if somebody had been conceived in rape or somebody had been conceived and then, you know, there, there was a divorce. How do we not get tripped up into saying something is right because the emotional appeal is, but they're people too? Yeah, great question. So that's where we need to distinguish who comes to be as a result of IVF from an ethical discussion of IVF itself in the same way, as you just pointed out there, uh, someone conceived as a result of rape. My friend, Ryan Bomberger is an excellent pro-life speaker. That's how he came into existence. And then his uh, uh, birth mother placed him for adoption. So he's never met his birth mother, but he does know that uh, she conceived him as a result of rape. Uh, Ryan is very grateful to be alive, but he does not agree with how he came to be. (laughs) He very much condemns the act of rape, but we have no ability to go back in history and undo what happened. So therefore we say, okay, how he came to be was evil, but who came to be was very good. He was an individual human person made in the image of God. The same is true if it's not violence, but it's just a, a sex outside of marriage. You have a hookup, let's say, and someone gets pregnant. Uh, from a Christian perspective, we would say that sexual encounter should not have happened. But who has now come into existence as a result of it is an individual human person made in God's image. And so we say the same thing about IVF. Uh, it should not have happened, morally speaking, but because we can't undo the fact that it did, then we at least acknowledge that the child that has come into existence from IVF is a individual living human person with uh, a soul made in God's image with a right to life. Uh, But acknowledging that we have valuable human beings who are equal to you and me, it doesn't mean that the way those human beings come into existence are all equal. That, you know, being conceived as in an act of love in a marriage is is the way things ought to be. Being conceived in an act of lust on a one night stand is not how things ought to be. And, And in those circumstances, we're discussing how someone came to be, not who came to be. So yes, we can, we can be grateful for someone's life, like my friend Ryan, but not agree with or endorse how certain individuals come into existence. Right. So you've mentioned love brings people into existence, lust can violence. And then we have this technology and the interesting part about the technological um, advancements, I don't even know if I want to call them advancements, is that oftentimes we can do things before we think through, should we do things? Right. And that's why this is an ethical concern. And one of the things I've learned, not just in this topic, but a lot of people pursue Ancestry.com, 23andMe, 
and a lot of family secrets come to yeah. light when right. they discover they have 12 brothers or sisters mm-hmm. or and some of these children who were conceived this way never were told this is how they were conceived but then here we have this technology which now gives people an extra burden to bear as as you said it's it's not uncommon for people in their teenage years in our society to have esteem issues and to wonder if they're valuable but now you find out that um somebody paid somebody was paid to give an egg somebody was paid to give sperm and here you are um the one video that i saw that comes out of the center for bioethics and culture is Listen to these people and see how it has affected them so that maybe we should be considering the children more than we consider someone's desire to be a parent. Yes, exactly. We need to think about the child. And that's where if we get back to what we were talking about earlier, the difference between, you know, pursuit of IVF and adoption. Adoption is oriented to the child who already exists. And it's like, okay, we have a child here who needs help. How do we best help this child with IVF? It's, it's not at all about a child because the child doesn't yet exist. So it's basically about the adult saying we have a want. So instead of a born child having a need for a home, it's adults having a want for a child. And then they respond to that want uh, in ways that then can create a lot of psychologically challenging situations for the children who come to be the, the documentary that Jennifer's, group produced, uh, I believe it, that one is Anonymous Father's Day, is a very striking documentary in which several people, including Alana Newman, who endorsed my book, um, they tell their stories. And Alana, uh, her mother, used a sperm donor, and uh, she realized the man raising her was not actually her biological father. And when her parents then divorced, the uh, before Alana had been conceived, the parents had adopted a child, I believe it was from Korea. So here's her father after the divorce, who applies for custody of the adopted child, but not Alana. Now, interestingly, he had no genetic relation to either child. But I think his response of wanting some degree of involvement in the life of the adopted child, but not Alana, shows that intuitively, there is a difference between uh, adoption and uh, the pursuit of IVF and sperm, you know, um, artificial insemination and different things like that. Yeah. So this is a vast topic. And as always, I recommend to my listeners, read the book. You might think, well, I don't need to read the book now because I've just listened to this podcast. No, you need to read the book. (laughs) It's entitled Conceived by Science, the subtitle Thinking Carefully and Compassionately, about infertility and IVF. But before we go, Stephanie, you've written two other books. And uh, one of them is entitled Love Unleashes Life, and the subtitle Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth. And you certainly, I would have to say, have used the giftings God has given you to communicate truth in such a way as it's intelligent, compassionate, and governed by What's Right and Wrong According to God? The second book that you wrote is called Start With What? And it's 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. So, young lady, you were all over this life issue. How did that start for you? How did you know 
God wanted you to pursue this area of ethics? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it goes back to when I was a young child. Both my parents were really involved in the pro-life movement. My mom volunteered at a pregnancy care center. So from the time I was very young, I knew about the topic of abortion and related topics, but primarily abortion. Uh, I loved babies and I was horrified by what abortion did. And so I became, in a sense, like my parents, but I was a child activist and I would go to conferences and rallies. I wrote letters when I was 12 and 13 and 14 to the political representatives back in Canada, where I where I was born and and where I was raised. And um, so that kind of laid the foundation for a deep-seated passion in me to um, rescue those being dragged to the slaughter and hold back those stumbling to their death. And when I was in college, I decided to get involved with the pro-life club. It seemed only natural because I had done so much pro-life activity as a teenager and a preteen. And as a result of involvement in that club, I went to a conference in which a speaker by the name of Scott Klusendorf spent the whole weekend teaching us pro-life apologetics, Uh, not apologizing for being pro-life, but rather giving a defense of the pro-life perspective using science and philosophy. By the end of the weekend, I thought, oh, my goodness, what he's saying is so logical. It's so reasonable and it's practical. It's something that I can easily communicate to others. And so I started giving talks just like Scott was doing. And one talk led to another talk, which led to another talk. And Scott began to mentor me. And I, when I graduated from college, decided to work with some other Canadians. At the time I was in Canada, now I live in the United States, but um, work with other Canadians to be full-time pro-life educators and activists. And over the, you know, now it's been 20 years of pro-life involvement and activity, uh, I've expanded to other topics, as you point out, assisted suicide, IVF, but all along the way, it really began with the seeds my parents sowed when I was a child. And they all have to do with life. Um, assisted suicide is a hot button issue because, again, it's presented like, why would you want someone to suffer? That was an argument. If a woman had been conceived in rape or was unable to um, raise a child, why would you want that child to suffer? So all these ways in which the society wants to destroy the image of God in man is cloaked with this idea of compassion. And I think you do an excellent job of understanding the issue, but showing the hypocrisy of those who push it because they're actually contradicting what they say they're trying to accomplish. Right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, praise God, it's my hope that, you know, my the the experience God has given me, the insights he's given me, and then the ability to communicate it to others uh, creates for a toolbox of resources that people can draw on to then help them communicate with others to try to build Christ's kingdom here on earth. Well, I got to tell you, Stephanie, you've helped me. I've learned a lot from you, and um, I'm grateful that uh, you're not the only one God has raised up. There are lots of other people in your age group that are unabashedly standing for truth and standing for what the Bible says, and I'm so encouraged by that because I do think that makes the future hopeful for all of us. Well, thank you. And and indeed, God always raises people up for, for such a time as this. And the key is that we always respond to the call. So tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, your website, things like that. 
Sure. Yeah. People go to loveunleasheslife.com, loveunleasheslife.com, and they can read my blog. Uh, there are links on the website to my three books and where to get them on Amazon and other places. So please go to loveunleasheslife.com. Very good. Well, Stephanie, I'm glad we finally connected. Having a new mother arrange her schedule is always interesting, but we worked it out. (laughs) We did. Thank you so much. All right. Listeners, as always, you can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to out of the question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.